I appreciate what uh, Terry had to share about next weekend. What a, what a great, great explanation of the reason we're doing it. We want kids, young kids, to know the freedom it is to, to, us, to get onto the, the Lord's lap and uh, to be loved on and to be cared about and cared for. So we're going we're to do that. We're going to pray over them in the service, obviously, but um, we'll, 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 we'll do some spiritual work that day. But we also want them to play. And that's, that's why pony rides and fun stuff after church. It's a good thing for kids to come to church and to get on the Lord's lap and also to have fun doing horse rides, right? Right? Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that too. Ladies, the Bible study starts this week. And I know that, um, that you've been hearing about this, but don't blow past this opportunity. This is a great time, not just for you to learn some new scriptures. Um, obviously, that'll be a byproduct. But the relationships that happen there are life-changing, and they're, it's really healthy. So I encourage you, if you haven't signed up, I'm nudging you now, pushing you over the edge. Come on, ladies, sign up and go. Um, and I'm, yes. Not yet. <laughs> but thanks for asking that, Carly. Okay, um, okay today's the, 20, the fourth. Uh, so Proverbs 4, 22 and 23. Here's a couple of good ones out of Proverbs. For my words are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You just got to love the Proverbs. I, I was listening to this teaching by this preacher, and uh, he was telling this story about traveling to China. A couple of preachers were traveling to China, and for some reason their, their, their trip there included a, a tour of a factory. And so the managers of this factory were leading them through and showing them how they were manufacturing whatever it is they were making. And and there was this woman that was coming with them, a young woman, they said in their early 20s, who uh, um, was following along. She was an intern. She was learning to become a manager in this, this factory. And she was quiet the whole time. They get done with the tour, and this, this guy leading the tour turns to these two, these two visitors, and he says to them, do you have any questions? And before they could say a word, she says, I got a question. And the, the guy looked at her and thought, well, I wasn't expecting, I was thinking them, but if you have a question, sure, go ahead and ask. And he thought maybe she was going to ask some question about the factory. Instead, she, uh, she looked at these two guests and she says to them, you know, are you pastors? Well, yeah. Why? She says, well, I listen to messages, sermons on the internet. And she asks this question of them. She says, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? It's an amazing question. It's like, it's like, it's a childlike question. And all of us sophisticated Americans realize how childish that question is because, you know, it's, it's almost impossible. How do you explain that to someone who has her perspective? How do you explain to someone that, well, there are, you know, there is so much freedom in America and there are so many choices and there are so many football and basketball and baseball leagues and so many terrific fishing holes and so many opportunities and plus beyond that there are so many things to look at in individual local churches with which we can disagree and we don't like this and we don't like that I mean there's all of these reasons and it's you know I don't know how you explain that to someone and you and not only do you you don't know how to explain it but you don't want to spoil their viewpoint because it's really a good one you know why don't people Go to church, and I, I don't. By the way, I'm not, I'm not preaching to the choir kind of a thing here. I'm not saying to you, how come you don't go to church? You're the ones in church. Way to go! And um, <laughs> I have to say that if I didn't have something really, you know, that I'm responsible to do right this moment, I'd been struggling today, thinking, man, summer's ending, eighty something degrees. 
let's just get the barbecue started early today or something. But so I commend you, by the way, for your desire just to be in the house of the Lord. I think that's really commendable and proud of you. And uh, as a church, we have really, um, you, know, you know, I'm just really proud of, proud of this family. I love you all. Such wonderful people. But her question is perfect for where this series has gone because, you know, it, it really illustrates that the church is not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a denomination. It's, it's the church is a gathering of people that were centered around an event, a movement centered around an event that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. I mean, I can say that in a sentence and it sounds so simple. <laughs> But there's so much majesty and power and truth and legs in a statement. That statement, um, it's so simple. That, that simple event that I just described in a sentence was so powerful that a couple thousand years ago, thousands of people in one day embraced the Lord. And um, thousands, multiple thousands of people. And, and it was... It was in that city where those events took place that we've been looking through the Word of God. We've been uh, in this series asking the questions, how in the world did the church survive the first century? How did we possibly make it out? I mean, because everything the world could do to smother, to suffocate, to put this message down somehow and hide it, there was, it was all being done. Mm-hmm. At the same time, other things were being broadcast and scattered, um, you know, trying to be broadcast. But how in the world did the church survive? It's, it's uh, you know, why today... Does a third of the world's population believe? A couple of billion people really believe that there is a connection between Jesus Christ and God. There's something going on there. And we've been in this series, um, and frankly, I, I realize here I am preaching to the choir. Most of you have this issue down very well. You understand the gospel. Um, and I, I'm not preaching about the gospel just in case there's one person here who's never heard it before, although I would do that. That's not my motive. I mean, I think the Holy Spirit's at work doing those kind of things. I, I really believe that where the Lord is taking this church family in this community in the, the tomorrows, or in the next days, weeks, months, and years, I don't know how long it will be, but where the Lord's taking us, I, I just have this sense as a pastor here that I need to be laying a very careful foundation for what it is we believe, what it is we stand for. And this precedes me at some point standing up here and casting vision and saying, here's our mission and here's what I really believe the Lord is calling us to. I think I'm doing that a little bit here, but we're doing foundation laying. And so if this is old news to you, forgive me for that. But I want every person who attends here to have this crystal clear crystal clear because what we present and what we believe is going to what we do at the foundation level is going to establish everything else that will stand so that's why I'm, I'm doing this um, this, this uh, question how did the church survive the first century it's been it's, it's really revealed to us in the, in the book of Acts and we've been there and I'm, I'm enjoying that um, so here by way of quick review are a couple things that have, have happened on that first day of the church when the church became defined as the bride of Christ. When, when that happened in that first day, several thousand people embraced Jesus. And there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection running all over the town. It was you know, thousands of people pouring into the streets saying, I just saw him, the guy that was on the cross and died. He's walking down the street. I'm not talking about one or two. We'll talk about We'll develop that in a little bit. Um, and so this, this, there was this initial... After the first message that, that Peter shared, a few thousand people get saved. But 
but within that same day or so, 5,000 men opened their heart to the Lord. That doesn't count the women and children, not that they don't count, but the statistics, there was a huge number of people in, in a day or two that all of a sudden were running all over the city saying, this man has risen from the grave. Someone who has that kind of authority <laughs> and has that kind of connection to the creator is worth paying attention to. And I've got my heart right there. I mean, these people are running all over doing that. And um, there were other issues. There were some political perspectives about that issue, too. Um, we've talked about that in the last week or two. It seemed to be a little bit anti-Roman, because after all, the Romans crucified him. And it seemed to be a little bit anti-Jewish establishment of the day, because after all, they were the ones that Jesus was continuously speaking out against, these leaders, in, uh, in public places. So this groundswell, this movement that was going on was creating some disruption politically. And there existed at that time a very delicate arrangement between the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities brought in the real power and the Jewish leaders kind of kept things manageable and under control. And as long as they did their thing, the, 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 the Romans stayed a little bit f- removed um, and the Romans also allowed them to have a place of authority. So it was this tenuous relationship between Roman authority and the Jewish leaders of the day. And here comes this movement, and all of a sudden there's thousands of people running around, and they're not quite so controllable anymore. It seems like every time they put their hands down, they kind of scattered a little bit more, and they, when they tried to snuff it out, it just got bigger and broader. And, and they, so, so what they did was they, uh, they grabbed the ringleaders... They arrested them. They tried to tell them to quit sharing a specific message. And they specifically said they couldn't do this. They couldn't share this. And we found this in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. They hated hearing that truth. People still don't want to hear that truth. People still object to hearing that truth. They'll call you narrow. They'll call you all kinds of things. And then they had these guys flogged. We talked about flogging. It was more than just you know, getting roughed up a bit. It was, it was life-threatening and actually killed people at times. It was pretty bad. And here's their response, Acts 5, 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's interesting that we don't find these guys huddled up somewhere in a, in a corner saying, how come bad things happen to good people? We don't see them asking those questions. We don't, we don't say to them, where's God? Doesn't he love me? I mean, <laughs> they're in a bad place. The, the, but actually, instead, it's the exact opposite. These guys can't stop talking about it. Every time they get in trouble, they rush right back out the doors and they're saying, he's alive, there's no other way but Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, and oh, by the way, you guys killed him. They kept saying those things, they just couldn't stop it. So uh, as this kind of continued, in the weeks that followed, the church grew and overflowed the streets of Jerusalem, and then these new leaders emerged, and there's this, this guy uh, who's mentioned, and we're going to look at him. His name was Stephen. He was one of the first deacons um, one of the first servers in the body, in the, in the bride. He was pretty bold. He was noted for saying some pretty bold things. We're going to read some of his words. Talk about bold. This guy really got in their grill. I mean, he just really did. And the leaders didn't like the way he was doing that, so they arrested him. So he goes to trial. They're saying, you've got to quit saying these things. And, and, and they're saying to him, okay, you can make your case. 
And uh, we find his response in Acts chapter 7. Let's look at some of that starting in verse 51. And uh, they were angry before he started. (laughs) And this sent him over the edge. Starting in verse 51. This is (laughs) Stephen talking to the people who could kill him if they wanted. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. (laughs) Boy, he starts out nice and politically correct, don't you think? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. This guy is not off the throttle at all. I mean, he's got his foot mashed to the floor here. Who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. Wow. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. (laughs) Can you picture that? I mean, I try to picture what's going on here and it almost looks funny to me. They're going, this guy. (laughs) And so they're gnashing. I don't guess that's what gnashing of the teeth is. I really don't know what that is, but... I guess they were cut to the heart and they gnashed with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He looks up and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Okay, now get that picture. I'm sorry, was that too loud? I hope I didn't blast anybody. But they stopped their ears. La, 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 I don't want to hear what this man's saying anymore. I get, it just makes me laugh, I guess. <laughs> like, how foolish is this? They're acting like madmen. They're acting completely irrational. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Wow. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to come back to that name. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Wow. I mean, (laughs) wow. Just uh, what an amazing scene that must have been. This guy who just would not, would not stop saying the name of Jesus. And uh, they couldn't stand it. They stopped their ears, they gnashed their teeth, they yelled at him, they did all kinds of things, and then they killed him. They would go to whatever ends it would take to resist hearing the truth. You know there are people that will absolutely refuse the truth, no matter what. We can never know who they are. Can't, you can't tell what's going on in someone else's heart. We never are to give up. That's holy territory. The Holy Spirit will decide those issues. Ours is just to share the name of Jesus. Anyway, so he was the first martyr of the early church, first one to give his life for the name of Jesus. And here's the deal politically. There was no negative reaction from Rome over the fact that they had killed this guy. The Roman authorities over the land didn't do anything. It's like they, it was okay with them which, of course, then empowers the Jewish leaders. And what happens politically next is it, this launches a persecution against the church, a major persecution is going on at this point. They're figuring, hey, I guess uh, Daddy Rome, it's okay with them. Let's get after it. And so that's politically where they go. And um, so all this persecution starts going on to the leaders, 
in all the people who embraced uh, Christianity. And in Acts chapter 1, right after what we just read, Luke starts talking about um, what's going on here, and he names this interesting character. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Speaking of Stephen. Saul is the person that we will discover in a little while is the, is the person named Paul. Saul is, um, is a Hebrew name of the Apostle Paul. And, you know, we're not really quite sure about the name Paul, whether that's the Roman version or the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name. Don't know any of that, but that's who this guy is. This, is, this, is, this guy is going to become the Apostle Paul. But right now, um, he approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, and Samaria, you know, which that all confirms what Jesus said um, in in Acts one. He says, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth." It's a, it's amazing how that happened, and it confirms. I, I'm just kind of I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not into numerology, but I catch these little things. Do you notice how Acts one eight is confirmed by Acts eight one? Kind of cool. The numbers on the verses are completely arbitrary. They're not inspired necessarily, but, um, but I kind of like those kinds of things because in the future they'll remind you that 8-1 and 1-8, there's something in there. Okay, so because of the persecution now, what's going on, all of the leaders, they're heading for the hills. They're scattering. The leaders, uh, the Jewish leaders are trying to put the thing out to quench it, and what's happening is now is it's just spreading. Instead of, instead of cleaning them out, so... The godly men would then go on and they bury uh, Stephen, but, but Saul, later to become Paul, he's, he, he goes on his mission to destroy the church. And he starts going from house to house, pulling off men and women and putting them into prison. And I mean, it was a full-blown, full-court press. He's trying to squash the church to kill the movement. And over time, Paul becomes the number one persecutor of the church. He's the the head guy, he's A number one, and his goal and his mission at this point, thinking that he's serving God, is to kill, to stamp out the local church. And this goes on for about three unchecked years until, and we find out what happens in uh, Acts 9. So let's pick up there, Acts 9, verses one, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters... Now, he, he wanted to be granted authority for what he was going to do next, and he wanted it in writing, to letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The reason that this movement at the time wasn't called the church, it was called the way, probably, no one really knows, but they believe that there was just a nickname given because so many times Jesus, in his, in his sermons, when he'd be out with people, he'd say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so he's, it's the way, and you'll find that in John 14. Um, but him saying that he was the way is a very, very narrow commentary. It, it, it's, it just makes, it, it polarizes the people. They're either in the way or they're completely angry with him for saying that. So now Saul has written permission to go stamp out and to do whatever. And so, um, okay, so verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, interesting choice of scripture here, me, the word me. 
it would have been a little bit different if the church was an institution. Jesus might have said, why do you persecute it? Or, you know, he might have said, why are you persecuting the organization or the building? No, he didn't say that. He said, why do you persecute me? I, you know, okay, verse 5. So, who are you, Lord? Saul asks. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are preaching. He replied. Now, okay, stop there and think of this through for a minute. What an amazing moment this had to be. I mean, you have spent the last several years persecuting people and killing them for what they believe, for what they say they saw. And now, you're on your own merry way. You're minding your own business on the road. Bang! Flash of light. And you hear a voice addressing you, and there's nobody talking to you. There may be other people with you. And something miraculous, something supernatural is going on. Let me ask you this question. What's the worst thing possible that you could be finding out here? I mean, the worst thing possible. This is worse than, you know, your truck broke down. This is worse than (laughs) your dog died. This is, I mean, what's the worst thing possible? A bad, something bad from your doctor? No, the worst thing possible here is you figure out that you have spent the last four years fighting against the creator of the heavens and the earth and gotten so deep into it that he has stopped you on a road, flash of light, supernatural visitation, and said, "Uh, excuse me, but do you realize who you are dealing with? What is the worst thing you could realize in that moment? I'm thinking the adrenaline must have gone when he realized, because Saul was a smart man. What must have been going through his soul? Have you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you realize how wrong you were and how exposed you were and there was no retrieving it and it was major? I mean, I don't think that there's a scenario I can think of in anybody's life, anywhere, anytime that, <laughs> that even gets close to this. Wow. And the implication is this. What you do to my people on the earth is the same as doing it to me. And in fact, the presence of my people on the earth is the same as my presence. There are other implications here too. Um, you know, obviously, Paul is in a world of trouble. Um, I have a, you know, you know me in rabbit trails. I can't resist myself, and I got one here. I mean, um, we'll just take a short one because it's a pretty cool thing that's in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, there's not a unanimous agreement by everybody that, um, that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. A lot of the books in the New Testament are. The majority of scholars, I think, probably think that Paul wrote Hebrews. Some think that it was one of Paul's um, people that he taught and worked with him. But I think it was Paul, and I'm going to show you why. Um, if we just take a quick look at Hebrews 10, there's a scripture there where this, the scripture says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay? You know, and when you hear that scripture, you think, wait a second. God's full of love. What, what, could, it, what could it be? Why would it be terrible to fall into his hands? Um, and maybe if Paul wrote this, that'll give us some illumination of what was going on in those moments. Um, flip over to Hebrews 10 if you have your Bible. I don't have this uh, to put up for you. You can just leave that up. We'll come back to it in a second, Jan. Um, But Hebrews 10, starting about verse 26 or so. For if we sin willfully, this is the author of the book of Hebrews writing to the Hebrews. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour our adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on his testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will be uh, thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Could this be Paul writing these words because he's experienced this very thing? Who has trampled God's uh, trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he, sanct- uh, he sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Wow. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will uh, judge his people. And then verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which you were, in which after you were illuminated, get that? There was light after which you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. In other words, this is so describing Paul. He's saying, what's the worst thing that can happen? And that's you find out that you've trampled the Son of God underfoot. And then you get illuminated in front of the very people that you were, you were humiliating and chasing and it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I believe this, this uh, commentary to the Hebrews was inspired by this moment on the road to Damascus. He knew how terrible it is to fall into the hands of a living God. He knew how scary it is to trample the bride of Christ. We call it the church. He knew how crazy it is to stand and resist heaven, to resist God. And somehow this later, I believe, makes, in, makes his way into uh, something he's trying to teach the, the, the church, the, the Hebrew church. And so the implications here are major. And that means that for us, I mean, how does that translate to today? Because obviously um, we're not going to go persecute people and kill them and throw them in prison because they name the name Jesus. We want them to do that. But it just tells us that the church is the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus on earth. We, we are his representatives. Not you individually, because you're not that good. It's us collectively, right? I mean, no one individually, but us collectively, the bride is the representative of Jesus on the earth. And we got our foibles, we got our mistakes, we got our problems. I'm not saying we're perfect like Jesus. But this is a big deal, this thing going on. Verse 6, now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So get their, their viewpoint about this whole thing. They're hearing the conversation, but they don't see the flash of light. They just see Paul drop to the ground. Now he can't seem to see, and he's having this conversation with someone, they, but they can hear it, but they can't see it. What do you suppose they're doing? <laughs> they were going with him. These lieutenants and privates and whatever they were going to be, they were going to go with them and help him drag people out by the hair out of their houses and throw them in prison and kill them. That was their plan. They'd seen it at work. They knew his authority. That was their deal. Now they're watching their leader go nuts on the road in front of them. Man, I want to be a fly on that wall. I mean, just to see what's going on. It's kind of like the other guys in the lab, you know. For three days he was blind. Um, oh, see, did I skip verse 8? Saul got up from the ground, but he opened his eyes and could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, verse 9. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. <laughs> his appetite was gone. 
in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Have no idea why that's in there. Um, <laughs> Straight Street. I guess it wasn't on Crooked Street. Okay, so, and ask for, there's probably a reason that I just don't know. And ask for a man named, uh, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I'll bet. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. He's blind. He knows he's confronted God. You better believe his appetite's gone, and he's praying. At least he knows where to point his efforts. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instru- instrument to proclaim my name. Interesting that he's not proclaiming um, my message or my teaching or um, but anything but, but my name. Procl- proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Notice this also was not a Jewish message. This was not a message to the people in a region, a message to the people in the city, a message to the people who were looking for the Messiah, a message just to the people who knew the Old Testament. This was a message to the whole world. Gentiles are just people that aren't Jewish. So you're either Jewish or Gentile. This was to everyone in the world. Wow. And it's interesting, too, that God picks who I would have considered the absolute most unlikely candidate to become his person, to to proclaim this. Who can you think of that would have been more unlikely than the number one persecutor of the church? I mean, you can't. You can think of some other people that would have also been pretty unlikely. Um, But but Paul? Saul? Wow. Wow. I think sometimes the Lord picks you for things and you think, ah, it's not me. It's, that can possibly be me. I'm, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm, I have no skill there. I'm, I have this list of mistakes. And, um, but the Lord is sovereign and he, he knows you and he knows what he wired into you. He knows what you're capable of. He knows those things. Okay, so um, where did we left? We left. And their, ki- and, and their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Man, that had been scary moments. This guy's faith, he's had a conversation, audible, I think, with the Lord, but still, it's got to be pretty scary. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, interesting choice of words, brother. That's a term that the, that the people who were in the way would call other believers. This guy hasn't met Saul. He knows of him. And everything he knows of him is that he's not a brother. But the Lord has spoken something to him. And that settled the issue. I love that faith. I love that faith. God has said it. Okay. I'm, I, don't need, I don't need to reason this out. I don't need three points in a PowerPoint to explain it to me. God said it. I'm good. Okay, um, that's me talking to me, by the way. Placing his hands on Saul, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. 
Good choice. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those, all those who call on, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I love the fact that the word says he proved. That's amazing. So after that whole story, um, Saul kind of disappears from the scene for quite a long period of time, you know, 12 to 14 years. I mean, you, you'll see if you study that he might teach here and he might appear here or there and teach something for a while. He spent some time with uh, a couple of the apostles, with Peter and with James, and made a couple of trips to Jerusalem. Um, and then after about 12, approximately 12 years, he launches off on what we call Paul's missionary journeys, and um, he goes off. And, 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 and uh, while he's doing that, the apostles are back in Jerusalem, and as a group, they're trying to launch the church among the Hebrews and uh, the Jewish people. And then Paul just takes on whatever's left over, which is the entire rest of the world, right? So he's off on his own, and he traveled by ship, and he went in you know, three large circles, and he kind of went around. And each time that he would land in a city, he would start off, he'd go to the local temple, and he'd share the news with them. And then after they would reject him and rough him up a bit and toss him out, he'd kind of get himself off and brushes himself off, and he'd go, go find the Gentiles in the city, and he'd say, hey, I've got some really terrific news for you. And he'd share the gospel with them. And he would share that, uh, you know, all of their search for religious truth was over. He's got some good news. It's true. And he shared all these things with them. And he, and he would boldly and fearlessly proclaim that, uh, about the resurrection of Jesus. In about the year A.D. of 58, about that time, he gets arrested in Jerusalem and taken to jail. He's there for a couple of years. And then after letting them know that he's a Roman citizen, he goes on appeal and so he starts this, this lengthy journey to Rome because he has the right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to the emperor. And while he's on this journey and while he's under house arrest during all this time, he writes letters to these churches that he's formed. And I'm sharing that with you because, um, just so that you understand, um, he wrote a, a letter to the church that was located in Ephesus, a city named Ephesus, and that's where we get the, the book of Ephesians. That's Paul's letter to the church in the city of Ephesus, Ephesians. Um, Philippi, Philippians, I mean, there are several of them, and, and an awful lot of the New Testament the Apostle Paul uh, wrote. And he was released, and then he got rearrested again, and that was about year 66 or so. And this time he spends a year and a half, and he's in a pretty dark place. He's in a real, real dungeon. Now, about that same time, the emperor is a guy named Nero, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. Terry Douglas. <laughs> Nero Caesar Augustus Germanicus. Man, what a name. And if you know history at all, you know this guy was really not a friend to Christians. Okay, Rome uh, caught on fire. Some people say that, well, he lit the fire. And about two-thirds of the city burned down. And a, and a city on fire then was not like it is now. You know, the fire department shows up and a, a building or two might get charred, but they put it out. Not in this case. Two-thirds of the city burns to the ground. The people are pretty upset. And, um, um, I mean, the rumors are that actually he lit the fire. 
And because he's a shrewd political leader, he's got to find somebody he can blame. He blames the Christians. Now, that makes the people angry with the Christians, and persecution, um, severe persecution happens there. They capture Christians and torture them. They did some gruesome things to them, gruesome things to them. I mean, some, some Roman historians say that Nero actually burned people to become torches in his garden in the evenings. I mean, it was just bad stuff going on. Now, while this is going on, Paul's in the dungeon, and then early one morning in the year 67, um, the guards come to Paul's prison doors, they open it up, and they lead him out, take him outside the city, and they take him to a place he probably knew what was next because they were leading him to a place that was commonly used for executions. And without any ceremony and without any other eyewitnesses, uh, the Apostle Paul is beheaded. He's put to death. Nobody really knows where that spot is. It's somewhere around Rome. And, uh, you know, his life ended there, but obviously his impact was really just beginning. Paul, Paul, Paul's a pretty big deal to the church. He was really used by God in a lot of ways. One year after that happened, Nero commits suicide. And today, people name their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. <laughs> just, just saying, just saying. And, <laughs> um, you know, so, so that, all that story about, about Paul, all the things that were going on and times in prison and writing letters and planning churches... You know, what's the significance of all that? I mean, it's, it's, it's something to see that. And I, I just want to say that there are times that some very, very bad things can happen to some very, very good people. And through all of that, God is still on the throne. And that seems like a religious platitude, especially when you're the one that's going through the pain. And if that's you today, I want to say this to you. God is still on the throne, but I don't want that to come off like a platitude. Because there is something also that should come with those words of peace, knowing that in spite of your circumstances, God is not taken by surprise. He's not back on his heels. He's not in retreat. There is something there. And, and actually, there's not really a mystery about that whole, that whole thing. I mean, it's, it's just part of the story. And, you know, when God looks at you and me, he sees not just our today, but he sees our future. He sees our hope. And he sees past our present pain. And he always is thinking about the good things for us. Always is. It's interesting that we don't ever find any examples here of the first century uh, Christians, you know, huddled up together saying, you know, where's God? Is he still there? Doesn't he love me? We just don't find those complaints. We find this bold commitment um, to this life-changing truth. Now, Paul's choices to go to this pagan culture is probably the reason or one of the primary reasons that the church exists today. It's one of the primary vessels that the Lord used to get us past the first century. And um, uh, so there, you know, these, these scriptures, and there's some interesting comments that we'll see in one of them in Paul's letters to Corinthians. I want to just take a minute there, and we're just about done. He defines what we call the gospel. And I want, I want, I want, I want us to know what that is as a church, because this this thing that we're going to kind of get down into something that would fit on a tape label. Remember what tapes were? Um, right? A, a simple little label um, is, is critically important because we need to make sure that it gets passed on from generation to generation. 
That's our deal to make sure. And, um, and this is true whether or not you old, know the Old Testament, whether or not you are someone seeking the return of the Messiah. It's the one thing that you and I have to understand. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this is, he's saying remind because he's already been there when he planted these churches. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. Here's the most important thing. If you forget everything else, remember this. If you don't understand everything else, get this. This is the f- most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. You know who Cephas is? Anybody who knows Cephas? Peter. That's Peter. That's another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. And get this. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Did you know that? It wasn't like some mysterious thing where he secretly appeared to one person, then the next day it appeared to two other people somewhere else. No, 500 people at the same time and in the same place all saw him at once. This wasn't some, I mean, this was public knowledge. Jesus has been seen by hundreds of people, not one or two. Now, there could be people that say, oh, he never really appeared, um, and it was, this was a put on by the apostles, who never, by the way, who were tortured to death, never of them ever recanted. They never, ever denied this. But, but ask yourself that, that if this isn't true, what about the 500? They all got together in a group. Somebody says, hey, we're going to make up a story and pretend Jesus came today. And not a single one of them said, oh, I was in the meeting. It was a sham. They put us up to it. No, hundreds of people, hundreds of people see Jesus and he goes on and says, most of whom are still living. Remember, this was written about 20 years after, after the resurrection. So, you know, in spite of how hard it was for some of these people to believe that somebody was resurrected, he's saying to them, you know what? Most of these guys are still alive. In fact, if you want to go check it out, go get yourself a boat ticket, get on over there. You could probably go into Jerusalem and find some of them because there's hundreds of people who saw them. Ask them their story. And last of all, verse 8, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. You know, I've read that before and I'm thinking, wait a second. Come on, Paul, isn't that a little bit of, you know, that's a little bit crazy. You mean you wrote most of the New Testament? God has decided to use you? What do you mean you're the least of all? Is it false humility? Is it Paul saying, I'm the least, so that people will say, no, 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 you're special? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I really think he looks at this and he's, this is not a false humility. I think he's saying, you know what? I'm the least because I really messed with the bride of Christ. I was on thin ice. The Lord retrieved me. I'm so grateful. Grace. Thank you, God, for grace. We're going to talk about grace next week. We're going to talk about grace and we're going to talk about righteousness. And we're going to talk about the fact that they don't need, they're not supposed to be in balance. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and we're going to talk next week about what it is that we do that keeps the, church, or the world away from us. What we do, our habits, are, our tendencies, the gravity that always pulls us back to the certain things. And next week should be kind of fun, especially for people who may come who don't come to church. 
they'll get to hear us kind of talking about family business and fessing up to stuff. And, and uh, it, it should be really healthy because it really is loving and true. And anyway, so I'm looking forward to next week. That's a rabbit trail for now, though. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He's saying, I don't know why God chose me. There's a lot of people he could have chose, chosen that were better than me, but he did. He chose me. And it's because of grace that he chose me, and it's because of grace everything that I've accomplished has happened. It's been grace, grace, grace. The name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, and grace. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He gave it to them in four very simple statements. And this is the bottom line, whether you know the Old Testament or not. Four simple statements. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. That's the gospel. Four simple statements. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised, and he appeared. Let's, let's say those words out loud together. I'll lead you. Just, just say them out. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. One more time. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised, and he appeared. Here's what he was saying to these guys, or to us. Okay, so we're thinking, okay, I've heard that there are seven days of creation and then something about the dinosaurs. I'm kind of confused by that. And Paul's saying, hold it, hold it, hold it. We can figure that out. We'll get to that. But that's not really important for right now. What you need to know is that Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. Or, you know, I've been reading the Revelation. It sounds kind of scary. I'm a little bit nervous about it. And I read about these horses and all the... Hold it, hold it, hold it. You can get to that. We'll get to that. That's important, but it's not critical. Here's what you need to know. You need to know Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised. And then he appeared. He died. He was buried. That's how you know he died. He was raised. And then he appeared. That's how we know he was raised, because he appeared. And, you know, I know there are people who have a boatload of questions and they get all these things and there are all these verses in the Bible and they're hard to understand. And, you know, sometimes you think you've got to go to seminary to figure it all out and it's just hard to get all that. <laughs> but Paul would say to you this. He'd say, Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised. And then he appeared. And that's the gospel. That's the starting point. That's the starting point. You don't get there after you get all the questions answered and sorted out. You start there. You start there. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose. And he appeared. Are you getting tired of hearing that yet? Because I hope not, because you're going to hear it some more. You know, if you want to wrestle with whether or not Christianity is true, don't, don't look at the Christians who have disappointed you. That's not where, where you'll get that question answered. You know, don't, don't go to a church that puts you to sleep. If, you know, that's not where you're going to get that question. Don't, don't even look at your mom and your dad who raised you as Christians, and yet they divorced, and dad ran, ran off with his secretary. Don't look there either. You're not going to get your answer there either. 
All of that stuff, although it's true, it's a distraction. What you need to know (laughs) is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose and he appeared. That's the starting point. That's the stopping point. That's the gospel. That's the foundation of everything we will ever do here. And everything we will ever say is the foundation of what we teach your kids. It's the foundation of how we will love the neighbors. It's the foundation, the name of Jesus. Why the name of Jesus? Because he died for our sins. He was buried, he rose, and he appeared. <laughs> okay, that, that nail is all the way down in, I suppose. I don't know. I got to make sure, though. I just got to go make sure. You know, I, I think <laughs> maybe one or two. Um, you know, I think about Paul, Saul, his upbringing, his little, being a little Jewish boy all that time in the temple, his, his educating, he was a man of some means. And um, life experiences, he traveled the world. And of all of the things that he could share with people, he said, here is the one thing, first importance, sent into the world to die for our sins, buried, raised from the dead, and he appeared. And I, the question that I always want to get to a person when they'll listen to it is have you embraced that have you actually embraced it personally can you say you know most of us might say most of us I think here probably would say well I had a moment when I was at camp or I was in a Billy Graham crusade or in a church service or one of my friends told me one on one you know the question is have you had this aha moment have you had this point where the lights came on you thought wow Christ came and died for my sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead and he appeared for me. And at the very moment that those lights go on, when that aha moment goes on in our soul, I believe that it's at that moment that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe that it's at that moment that my eternity is secure. It's not going to be done because I help enough little old ladies across the road, although I try to do that dangerous anymore, right? But there's not enough little old ladies to get me to heaven. There just isn't. And I don't have enough time to get them all across. There is no way that I can earn my way. And if you have never had that certain moment that you know that you said, wow, it was for me and I receive it, God. If you've never had that certain moment, you might have all kinds of sophisticated questions, and I'm telling you, I'll never have the answers to all of your sophisticated questions. But you need to be able to answer the question, what do you do? What did you do with God's Son? Today's the perfect day. And if this clicked with you and with your soul, that's because the Holy Spirit is witnessing something in your spirit. And so we're going to just pray as a group, and I'm just going to pray. And you can pray this out loud, or you can just pray it within your soul, and uh, we're done. So just close your eyes please, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I believe you came and you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were buried. I believe you rose from the grave. And I believe that so many people saw you. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for me. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me. In Jesus' name, in your name, Lord, I pray. Amen.